just pick like home photos that people have who's Oh, I'm a Leo, it's fine. <laughs> Astrology. The Angelita Fergus. The Angelita Fergus Christmas Daycare Center Dinner. <gasps> what does that mean? What is that place? That benefited the underprivileged children of the Angelita Fergus. <laughs> Ooh, cut it out, cut it off, turn it out. Okay, we did it. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another wild and wacky, wonderful episode of Murder's a Drag with me, Aura Van Dank says it right there. You might realize that I have not been showing my entire backdrop this entire time. And you know what? I've added fairy lights because fairy lights make everything better. I've added, I'm just kidding, that's all I've added. But my glowing, shining, winning personality is what you're really all here for and I already know that. So let's get down to business and defeat those Huns, baby. So today I'm filming on my birthday and I'm a Leo, so I had to mention that at some point in this podcast. So obviously good vibes this week. It's been good vibes this week. I know we're amidst a pandemic. I know that that's shitty and we have shitty politicians and I don't know about you, but these ads are getting on my nerves and I know it's an election year and like I've been alive for a couple of them now, so I can understand why, but I just, every time, who no matter who it is on my TV, I'm like, please, I'm just trying to watch cartoons. So, major shout-outs this week to, well, I'm not gonna give you a major shout-out. You get, like, a, a, a an honorable mention shout-out, Jeff, because you tagged me in this article on Facebook, and that's how I found it. The major shout-out, and Jeff will understand, goes to J.D. Doyle, who has been doing an absolutely fantastic job of preserving queer history for a long time now. And of all the research I've done, of all 23 episodes, I haven't seen so many things in one archive. So many show flyers, newspaper clippings, home photos that people have submitted to him or that he's found in records. It's insane. Just And his Facebook is great. He posts random gay images every day, be it any of those things that I just named. I just need to give J.D. Doyle all the credit, all the shout-outs, every single picture that I'm using in this video besides the thumbnail obviously, has come from one of his archives and the URLs for that will be linked below. And I absolutely recommend that you all go check out those archives because they're fantastic. And if you don't feel like clicking on links, those are the JD Doyle archives, obviously, including the HoustonLGBTHistory.org archive, the TexasObituaryProject.org archive, and that's where I got all of the pictures for this episode from. But he has more websites, more archives, and it is absolutely stunning what he's done. He's done great work. All of the claps to you, JD. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how excited it has made me to find this resource. I just, oh, it's so fun to scroll through and read. It's great. Thank you for that. And Jeff for showing me him. So every so often, I stumble upon a case that I've got to throw off my plans for the week. If I've started writing, it doesn't matter. Like, this case just consumes my mind. I can't think about anything else but researching this case and writing about it. This happened to be one of those weeks. And I know a lot of you just recently started watching this show. I don't know if you've caught up. Very bingeable content. You should do so. But my first ever episode was about a drag queen in New York, a famous drag queen, who had a mummy in her closet for like 20-some years, almost 30 years, before anybody found it. You know, the roots of this podcast come from mummies. And for me to find another queer history moment that involves a mummification death is baffling to me. That's, it's so wild. And this case is just so wild. So, again, I have to thank Jeff for showing me it. Thank you, Jeff, you beautiful fuck. I turned a fan on. I'm sorry if there's more background noise, but girl, it is August in North Carolina. The humid, I'm sweltering. I can't do it. So, 
I apologize. So let's establish a setting here. We're in the 60s in Texas. It's Texas in the 60s. Not great for gay people, but nonetheless, there's a lot of gay people there because there's a big population in Texas and where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of gay people because that's how it works, biology. Remember when I said it was the 60s? I lied to you. It was the 70s. There were tight pants. There was leather. There was cigarettes. There was not acid anymore because they made that illegal in 1966, but boy did they find other drugs to do. They had it all. The LGBT community in the city of Houston is fairly large as far as LGBT communities in the 70s go, and it's growing at a pretty consistent pace, so it's gonna get big. They can tell. So gays all around rural Texas and other areas flock to their nearest city, and for a lot of them, that city was Houston. And located in Houston was this magical address, 1732 Westheimer Road, that was like eight different gay bars from the span from 1974 to 1990. So it was one of the longest lasting gay bars in the Houston LGBT history even though it went by three different names. However, it always remained in the same circle and for its entire lifespan remained a gay leather kink bar. My cup of tea. Now, like I said, JD has collected show flyers, clippings, posters, announcements, newspapers, I mean everything, everything, everything regarding um, the LGBT history, especially in Texas. So I was able to find a lot of pictures and a lot of information on all of these bars that existed at this same address. And I found it really interesting that Houston in the 80s had a huge market and scene for genderfuck drag and they even had a group of drag performers called the Genderfucks, which I thought was great. I mean, look at this picture. Look how far back alternative drag goes. Now it's time for some confusing but interesting and valuable bar history about these places. The first bar to exist there, the locker room, opened its doors in 1974 from a converted gas station and had a sign out front that read laundromat and was sort of their cover for the bar that was entered around the back of the building because a group of gay people together enjoying themselves was considered indecent exposure, public nuisance, you know, there was a lot of different terms. So it had to be a secret so that, you know, I mean, that was illegal. That's why it had to be a secret. Eventually, they named that establishment just The Locker. Keep it short, keep it simple, make it chic. They had amazing drag shows there, amazing performers there, great kink culture, great leather culture, and the genderfucks came and performed there often, which is fantastic because if I could, I would see them today, absolutely. And at their events, they had like a leather vendor come and sell leatherware, and they had poppers for sale at cheap prices. And I don't understand why the gay bars here don't do that because like if you had leather stuff for sale and like kinky jock shops and stuff you'd make so much money that there's a market there and you need to start doing that at your bars also poppers that's important and lots of crisco again if you didn't follow the show from the very beginning when it was just a podcast i learned in my second episode of this journey that i've been on that crisco was lube for gay men back in the those times which just sounds like infections to me and i can't imagine that those things are supposed to go inside external use only folks go get some astroglide actually astroglide sex get that platinum stuff moral of that story is please don't put crisco up you booty hole that's not where it's supposed to go after that, the club became a place called The Drum, and all of the owners were still involved, and they were just kind of flip-flopping and rebranding and putting it in different people's names and making it a, kind of a different experience, but it always stayed a leather kink bar, and it was always a gay bar. From what I gathered online, The Drum was significantly more racy than The Locker. I'll just put this poster up here. 
for reference. And I would like to add that I do not personally want to know how one wins a fisting contest because that is not something that I've taken part in and I am not interested in. Not kink shaming. How does one win that contest? <laughs> Wild times. The posters for the time, obviously, were very 80s and old school. There were full dicks on the posters. Full peen just hanging out there on them posters, advertising. They were like, most of what we're doing is illegal already, so we may as well just put a full-ass cock on that poster, and that's fine. And although slathered in Crisco and sniffing poppers, the gays and queens and all the members of the LGBT community couldn't help but to still do some charity, because it's in our nature to help one another. In November of 1980, the Different Drum, as it was called at the time, hosted a charity event called Love Ya Crisco Night that benefited the underprivileged children of the Angelita Fergus Daycare Center Christmas Party. So they were still out here doing charity while having a Celebrate the Lube night. How can you not love that? The gay bars back then in Texas were raided often, as you can imagine. So the locker and the drum and the bar that followed all dealt with that as an issue. People would be arrested on charges like public intoxication, public nudity, public indecency, exposure, anything that those people could get written down into a ticket just to put those people in jail because it was homophobia. They didn't like it, they hated it, it grossed them out, it made them feel uncomfortable, so they wanted to sweep it under the rug, arrest it, and get rid of it. You know how the story goes. And if you don't, I have an episode about Stonewall. A raid on the drum in 1982 didn't go exactly as planned for the officers posing the raid because they were fucking idiots. <laughs> they tried to claim that they made the arrest that they had that night because they heard somebody unzip their pants in a bar, a very crowded, very loud bar, music blaring from 14 feet away. That's when the arrest started, that's when the raid started, lights went up, everybody on the ground. I, I don't know how raids work, but they made them do the whole cat and caboodle, all because they thought they heard somebody unzip their pants from 14 feet away in a crowded bar. Uh, no, you did not. I turned the fan off for two seconds, got hell hot again. That's great. When the charges were eventually dropped on that, because it was absolutely ridiculous, uh, the gay newspaper, or maybe it was a gay column in a newspaper? I'm not entirely sure. Tore the police apart because that, I mean, come on. That is, wow, that's dumb. Big dumb. A year later, they actually used that raid and had a one-year anniversary of the raid and used the raid as a promotion. Genius. Glorious. To be honest, the drum... When that bar was the drum, it reminds me of the Salty Spittoon from Spongebob. Once again, the owners flip-flop and change, and Ted Lenz comes on the scene and buys up the bar or starts renting it. That doesn't really matter. And again, it's a leather bar, and he names it Shoots, after, like, parachutes and paratroopers, I guess. And it's got basically the same theme, the same kind of events, the all-leather, daddy-kinky stuff is still going on. That bar officially opened as Shoots on January 30th, 1986. They have a great successful opening, the bar is packed, people are very happy to have their kink bar back. A year in, in June, Pride Month nonetheless, Shoots is raided and they begin to have to deal with all of that bullshit as well, which starts to just put a strain on it and nothing, not a huge strain, it's something that all of the bars dealt with at that time and one of the bars in the area, Mary's, was actually the most targeted. So for shoots and the other bars to be raided was a little more rare, but it was still a problem for everybody nonetheless. Shoots is doing a great job. They're really crowded all the time. They have a successful leather company coming on their crowded nights to sell leather gear to the patrons in the crowd. So they're really doing great business and it's been a great year for Ted and his friends. They had lubed up Crisco covered wrestling contests. They had fetish nights. They had lots of strip contests. Ted had a creepy mustache the whole time. 
They even packed out their bar for their fourth anniversary on the fourth year of them opening, and it was packed. Everybody looked like they were having a great time, pre-pandemic world. So that celebration is in February of 1990, and only four months later, shit completely hits the fan in June. Ted, obviously into some kinky stuff, starts to hear about this new sexual fad within the kink community called mummification. It's exactly what you think it is. It's basically a kink where you wrap your partner up in something, basically sensory deprivation. You leave holes for the fun bits and a hole to breathe. Yeah, you go from there and do your kinky stuff. Sounds like my personal worst nightmare because I am claustrophobic, so that's a no-go for me. And I guess Ted was having some trouble finding a partner willing to do this by just uh, asking around casually, hey, can I wrap you up, turn you into a mummy? And Ted wanted to go further and put them in a casket before continuing on with the kinky stuff. And nobody was really into it, I guess, except he found somebody um, putting an ad in the newspaper. They let you do some weird shit back then. So he finds this 24-year-old, pretty twinkish build kind of guy. This guy's got a really rough past. James Lutz had a few run-ins with law enforcement for possession of cocaine, but that's like, who wasn't in possession of cocaine in the 80s? But he was also transient and didn't have a lot of family there for him, so he kind of lived a hard life. He was thought to be most likely an escort, and that's kind of how he and Ted got intertwined with each other. And there's not much info on James, um, other than the articles regarding his run-in with Ted. So James and Ted meet up and get busy with the mummification stuff. Um, Ted has also purchased this coffin to further this fantasy. I guess they were trying to go for a more sensory-deprived experience, which feels like an unnecessary risk to take there, Ted. What are you doing? So James gets all wrapped up, and Ted's like, yeah, I'm gonna close you in there and you're gonna be daddy's little mummy boy while I go get us some water downstairs. I'm sorry, that was awful. Ted goes downstairs, gets some water because hydration's important, and then has a fucking brain aneurysm downstairs and is rushed to the hospital while James is in the casket. I am convinced that this is where Stephen King got the idea for his story Gerald's game, even though I don't know when they were written in comparison to when this happened, but if you haven't seen the movie, these this couple goes off for a little fuck vacation in the mountains. The husband's like, I wanna be kinky, I'm gonna handcuff you, and handcuffs his wife. His wife is like, mm, I'm not really into this. He starts fighting with her, has a heart attack, and dies. So she's stuck to the bed, handcuffed like this, alone in the woods. You know, nobody come around. It's crazy. But this is what happened to poor James. Ted's rushed to the hospital. He has brain surgery because he's got a brain tumor, has absolutely no recollection of what he was doing before he had the aneurysm, so he doesn't remember that he has a sex partner in a coffin wrapped in, like, plastic wrap and stuff upstairs. Doesn't even remember that there was a coffin upstairs. And James suffocates in there. A truly awful, awful way to die. I mean, Jesus. A week later, a neighbor goes over to Ted's to borrow something, and smells a very strong smell of decay. So he goes and follows his nose for the fruity taste that shows and finds a casket with a week old dead body that was sweltering in the Texas heat. Toucan Sam lied to us. Neighbor guy immediately runs out of the house, calls the cops, is like, wow, I just found a dead body in a casket in this guy's house who's been in the hospital for like a week. You guys need to do something about it. Police gathered a bunch of evidence, including tons of tapes with names on them, all this like leather gear and bondage stuff. They think they've caught this serial killer. They end up definitely watching some crazy gay kink porn, and I don't think that they watched all of those tapes. After one of them, they probably said, you know what, we have enough evidence here. These are not snuff films, and indeed is just gay porn. 
Because he had this giant wrought iron cage, he had a 500 pound electric rig hanging from his ceiling, all types of whips and chains and leather gear. They really thought that they had just found this lifelong serial killer, but in reality it was just a really kinky gay dude. And he admitted that, he said, I've done some kinky stuff in my life, but I could never kill anyone. I genuinely believe this was a very unfortunate accident that had to be ruled a homicide. Ted had absolutely no recollection of anybody coming over, and ultimately no no charges were able to be brought against him. Ted was in the hospital for like a week before they were able to successfully remove the brain tumor and then he stayed in the hospital for a while after that. While he was there, he had to liquidate the assets of Shoots the bar because he was in the hospital getting brain surgery also amid this murder scandal. So he shut the bar down because it got huge publicity after he was found with a body at his house. And unfortunately the bar, one of the longest standing bars in Houston for gay people was shut down. Today it's this really gentrification-y, that's a word, cafe there, and I just wonder if the people who eat at this cafe know that there was a fisting contest in the same building. And like I said, police did think that they had just found a serial killer, not only because he had all of these things, but there were also two other really brutal murders at the time, and they thought that this person would be responsible for the other two murders because of how brutal they all were. This one turned out to be a crazy Gerald's Game-esque accident. Now, after this, there were some absolutely wild news articles talking about the mummification fad itself, because of how crazy it is to think of doing. The newspaper article about the mummification stuff might be my favorite article ever though because the way that this man just describes his experience at this mummification party, he's like, yeah, there were three piles on the table. There's a pile of coke, a pile of meth, and a pile of weed. And people were just going ham, going crazy, having sex with each other until finally we wrapped this guy up and uh, stuck an electric prod up his butt, turned it on, and it went from there, which is, Sounds like a lot of pain to me, to be honest. They said they electrocuted this guy's prostate for like an hour, and all of that was in the newspaper. A newspaper, with pictures, blurred out, but pictures were there too. It was one of the most wild things I've ever read. And I want to know the reporter that went there and was like, I'm gonna go to this Brotherhood of Pain party and take pictures of them mummy-fucking a dude. What is mummy-fucking? I mean, yeah, that's what happened. That's this week's story about how James Lutz was accidentally murdered and Ted Lenz was the person who accidentally murdered him. And also about the gay bar in 1738 Westheimer? No, that's, that's, um, that's Fedua. 1732 Westheimer Road. A Little bit of history about it. You guys know what it's time for. Flawless transition of me into a costume, which is definitely what I'm wearing under this t-shirt right now, okay? BRB. I love that I say that and then don't go anywhere. Yes! So, as I always say, this is the finished look for this week. Podcasters, that makes no sense to you. YouTubers, it does, because I'm here. It's a look. Podcasters, go on Instagram. Go look at these looks I'm serving you. Look at this beautiful wig. This new costume. Not to mention... Hmm? Huh? How about it? Well, this was a fun story this week, huh? Good times. I don't have my chair anymore because I wanted a better angle of me up against the wall. It's me, Aura Van Dank. You're watching Disney Channel, and I'll see you next week. Mwah.